Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. We talked to a man who's on the Kremlin's kill list for his activism in getting the Magnitsky laws into every country. A controversial climate tax ruling deals a blow to provinces fighting it, and it fuels the debate on if the judges in this country are overstepping the line into activism. And vaccines may be safe, but this constant source of misinformation and changing the way it's being delivered is causing a lot of confusion and now a whole lot of hesitancy. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. While opponents have been going to court, spending hard-earned tax dollars on lawyers, we have implemented the policy in real time, and we have seen that it truly works. How do you know it works? There's no data to back it up. Well, you'll start with the big story, one of the more consequential stories, and that is uh, something that will excite the climate crowd, and that is the ruling on the carbon tax that uh, the federal government can go ahead. And if you thought they were insufferable before today, you have not seen anything yet. All right. But as you've been hearing, uh, Canada's top court has ruled that the Trudeau government can, in fact, set a carbon tax if provinces won't do it. And the three provinces fighting this tax, Ontario, Alberta and Saskatchewan, for them, the fight is now over. And we haven't heard from Doug Ford on this particular issue. But it does not mean the debate is over, as we are being told it is. It is not. We can debate this issue. But let's get the quick and dirty on the ruling, because the top court ruled that when it comes to the issue of national concern, the federal government can step in and act. What the ruling did not say, which the climate crusaders seem to ignore, is that a carbon tax works. What they didn't say is that it's smart or good policy. So the climate crowd, you know, can state that the debate on climate change has been decided, but that's a figment of their of their delusion because it's not over. I mean, Al Gore is proof of that. I mean, remember, it was it was Gore who stated the North Pole will be ice-free by 2013. Well, hi. Welcome to 2021. Still a lot of ice going on. But in the ruling, the justices found that the law is constitutional because reducing greenhouse gas emissions is a, quote, matter of national concern and that the law is meant to address a profound nationwide harm associated with a purely interprovincial approach to regulating GHG emissions. So there was, there was that comment and a few other comments that stood out to, to me in the ruling that seem an opinion and not fact. Because in the ruling, the judges ruled that carbon emissions don't know borders. Well, okay, then why don't the federal government, you know, step in and see if they can tax places like the United States, you know? And if the feds feel there is a real threat, then they should be going after the real carbon offenders of the world because we are not the biggest offender. The U.S. pumps out much more pollution than we do, and we share the border, so let's get an export tax going on the goods they send us. Or better yet, let's tax China on goods coming in. They are a massive offender in the world, probably the worst offender in the world. And they don't pay anything. They've done nothing to address it. I mean, if the Trudeau government is truly serious about reducing emissions, why are they only intent on punishing Canadians and shaming those who don't buy into their hot air? I would prefer this not to be a partisan issue. And, and I've been pretty clear about this for, for, uh, since I've been appointed. Um, 
Climate change shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be an issue on which we all agree it's real, it's a pressing issue, that every political party in this country has a plan, uh, a credible plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We may have different elements uh, that are different in different plans, fair enough. But that should be the basis of the conversation that we have in Canada. That is how it works in the United Kingdom, that is how it works in France, that is how it works in Germany. Um, but it doesn't work that way in, in Canada because we still have a major political organization in this country that doesn't even believe climate change is real. So this should not be a partisan issue, says guy taking partisan shot, right? <laughs> That's Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. If you don't want it to be partisan, then stop that kind of crap right there. But what stood out in the ruling for me and where I, I felt uncomfortable were statements that, you know, quote, climate change causes profound nationwide harm or that climate change is an existential threat. Um, that is not conclusive. That is not conclusive at all. And that a few of these judges inserted their personal climate opinions is, to me, is a, is a problem. I mean, there is a profound national harm, but it's not emissions. It's that this tax hits Canadians disproportionately. I mean, you just ask a farmer. Ask a farmer who has to bear the brunt of this policy while they're drying their crops. They're hurt by this. Or factor in the fact that this tax drives up the price on pretty much everything that we buy for everyday Canadians, uh, whether it be food, uh, the gas we use, I mean, everything. And, you know, keep in mind, a, a year ago, we were told by Catherine McKenna that this tax would not move beyond $50 per carbon ton. Well, here we are, and it's now $170 per ton. And that is still apparently nowhere near what we need to pay if we're to meet these Paris climate targets. So don't be surprised when the Trudeau government hikes it again and they'll use the arguments in this court ruling today that, well, it's a national concern, so the feds can do whatever they like. And this is only one carbon pricing tool that they've brought in. There, there are two taxes that they brought in. There's also the clean energy fuel tax that kicks in in just a couple of weeks. I mean, just wait till that thing comes in and you start to really see what you're paying for in extra costs. So there are national harms done to everyday people. And if the rest of the country wants a reminder, and if Ontarians need a reminder of how these green dreams end, I mean, you just need to look back to the McGuinty wind days to their green energy policy Back then we were told, well, there is the promise of 50,000 jobs and just a tiny 1% hike in hydro costs. Well, how did that work out? <laughs> it didn't create any jobs. Our manufacturing sector lost 350,000 jobs and our hydro now has to be permanently subsidized so that we can afford it. So there is a cost. So nonetheless, there's going to be a plenty of politics played with this ruling. Aaron O'Toole um, has said that if he's elected, he's going to repeal this and he'll have a plan that doesn't punish everyday people. So we'll go through some of the things that he might or might not do um, because it's a big issue and there are, there are going to be consequential um, you know, issues that come out of this. And so if someone tells you or, or someone says the debate is over, the Supreme Court has said, it, well, no, it's not over. And that the Supreme Court has stated that the debate over tells you that there is debate to be had. That's not their job. Their job is to rule uh, on, on these issues, not insert their opinion. We do have a busy show um, coming ahead. We've got lots we're going to cover. We will talk to a man who is on the Kremlin's 
kill list, and it's for his activism in fighting the world's worst actors, and uh, he's a fascinating guy. And he's been pushing to get the Magnitsky sanctions into every country, and that is why Vladimir Putin wants him gone. And once was, I guess, written off as a conspiracy theory, maybe a thing as experts start to raise questions about where did COVID come from and could it have possibly been accidental out of a bio lab in Wuhan? So we'll talk about that in the nine o'clock hour. Also, a scathing report from the Federal Auditor General came out today on pandemic preparedness. And gee, guess what? We weren't ready. We were never prepared. And uh, the Trudeau government failed. And I mean, failed to deliver. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, And this is Global News Radio. Well, we know now Canada has slapped sanctions on nine Russian government officials for the poisoning and prosecution of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. And we're months, of course, behind our allies in doing this. So we are behind on this. And as expected, Vladimir Putin is threatening now some sort of retaliation, just as he did the last time sanctions were leveled against high-level Russians. So what would that retaliation look like? Well, my next guest might know. Bill Browder Browder was a uh, financial investor in Russia. He had a lawyer by the name of Sergei Magnitsky. He was a whistleblower on Russian corruption, and ultimately he was tortured and killed for speaking out. And since then, Browder has dedicated his life to fighting corruption and is the chief architect of the Magnitsky Act, which is designed to hit high-level international bad actors where it hurts, which is in the pocketbook. And he's such a thorn in Vladimir Putin's side Mr. Browder is now on a Kremlin kill list. Bill Browder joining me now, a University of Chicago alumnus and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, also host of the podcast Big Brains, if you want to listen, and best-selling book author of Red Notice. Good to have you, Mr. Browder. Great to be here. You've given up everything in your life to um, really kind of, uh, well, become a political activist, a human rights activist, and certainly the chief architect of the Magnitsiat passed uh, in several countries, but your goal is to get this enacted around the world. I mean, whenever you hear that sanctions have been leveled by one of the G7 nations, how much more difficult does your life become? Well, um, my life becomes more difficult and it also becomes easier. Part of my life is getting uh, all the countries around the world to do Magnitsky acts. And the more people that do it, the easier it is to get the stragglers on board. But of course my life becomes more difficult in that every time I do it, um, Vladimir Putin gets a little bit angrier. And um, he's the kind of person when he's angry, does things that you generally don't want to be on the other side of. Right. And, and certainly either your, your former and, and the late Sergei, uh, Sergei Magninsky, um, you know, he paid with his life ultimately to be a whistleblower and, and try to right wrongs. Um, and so can you live any kind of normal life at this point? Well, um, I, I live the life um, that I'm comfortable living. I, I, I mean, obviously, I've got to take lots of precautions. But the, the most important thing is that I carry on doing what I'm doing. I'm not intimidated. I'm not cowed into submission. I, I walk with my head held high. I continue to speak out against Vladimir Putin. And I continue to demand justice for Sergei Magnitsky and other victims in Russia. And no matter how threatening they are, I'm not going to stop doing that. 
well, you've got a much thicker skin than, than I would say 99% of the, of the population then. Um, Alexei Navalny is also a big thorn in Vladimir Putin's side. And this is the reason for these latest um, sanctions being leveled. But Canada, when it comes to, you know, using this power has been very tepid. Certainly um, China, I think, should have been hit with sanctions a long, long time ago. And we are five months late to the game on this. Our allies move much faster to level these kinds of sanctions against Russia. Why is it that we are, are not using it more? Because it is such a valuable tool, um, you know, that, that really does hit the, the wrongdoers of the world very much where it hurts. It really is the best tool possible because it, instead of going after the whole country, which sanctioning a whole country, which generally sanctions the victims of the regime more than it sanctions the perpetrators, this one singles out the perpetrators goes, names them and then goes after them individually and goes after their financial assets and their ability to travel. And that's painful for these people. And, and it's such a valuable tool. It's such a targeted tool. It's like a modern day um, cancer drug applied to human rights mm -hmm. abuse. Um, it, it's, it's kind of, it, it, it's always perplexed me why, why Canada has been so late to the game because Canada wasn't late to the game initially. Canada was the second country right. to do the Magnitsky Act. Um, after the United States. And, and when Christian Freeland was the foreign minister, she applied it towards the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and those who killed mm -hmm. Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident journalist, and various others, and Venezuelans, Venezuelan Maduro regime people. And then all of a sudden, when she left, things went really quiet. And right. I can only imagine that it's a, a matter of personal preference of, of subsequent foreign ministers not to, not to act um, with the Magnitsky Act, but um, what, whatever they didn't do, let, let's give them credit today for what they did do yesterday, which is they sanctioned nine very bad guys in Russia who were involved in chemical weapons attacks on Alexei Navalny and those who were involved in his false arrest and persecution. Um, they do that. Canada deserves credit today for what they did yesterday, and we can we can all post game why it took them so long. But the most important thing is Canada has done what it should should have done. And as I understand, and you can clarify this for me, in this latest round of sanctions, there is still a, a window of a few weeks that, that those uh, targeted would still be able to get their money out of wherever they need to get out of. Uh, is that a loophole or is that how this is designed? Well, um, I would imagine that any of these people would have gotten their money out of all Western countries a while ago, because uh, as, as we have discussed, other countries sanctioned them earlier. And so as I, I, I imagine that they if they had money in Canada, they probably didn't keep it in Canada because they would have expected right. Canada to act sooner. So I don't think there's any great um, problem right now with that. Um, uh, and, and on top of that, the, the sanctions are not so much designed to grab their money as it's designed to make them not welcome anywhere in the world to, to put right. their money or keep their money in the future. And so oftentimes they might not even have any money in Canada or the United States, but by being on these sanctions lists, um, no Canadian company and no American company, no British company um, can do business with them. And that, and that becomes a very difficult thing. All of a sudden, their credit cards get canceled. Well, if, if they have private jets that have avionics, um, they can't have the jet service and, and they're grounded. And, and all sorts of things happen to these people that, that make life really humiliating for them. And, they, they, and it's, it's, a really, it's something that they find very bad. 
which for us then, it means it's very good. And earlier this week, um, four Chinese officials were sanctioned um, by Canada for human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims. So we know what China does when it retaliates. They, you know, it kidnaps Canadians off the streets and then jails them. Um, there's all sorts of escalations that could take. But Putin, in a statement last night, is promising retaliation. That's not new for him. But what does that look like? From him. Um, well, well, I, I've been in this game for a long time. We started the Magnitsky Justice Campaign more than ten years ago, and and when the U.S. passed their um, the first Magnitsky Act, he he huffed and he puffed and he said the same thing, and and uh, and then he sanctioned a bunch of U.S. Um, uh, members of Congress who were involved in putting the sanctions in place, and mm-hmm. so those poor members of Congress um, can no longer travel on vacation to Siberia. They're um, any accounts that they might have had at Spare Bank or Vinesh Torg Bank are no longer um, active. Um, so, so I, I mean, I'm saying this uh, sarcastically. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, so all of a sudden, their their lives in in, in on tourism and and uh, commerce in Russia are ruined. But since nobody has tourism or con- uh, commerce in Russia, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of a it's kind of an empty uh, retaliation. And I think the same thing is true with China. China has retaliated against a number of European politicians for the um, for their for their um, sanctioning of those same uh, four individuals, and um, uh, everyone I know who's on that list feels like it's a badge of honor that that, that they've been recognized for being the most effective, um, you know, critics of China's uh, atrocious human rights record as as relates to the genocide of the Uyghur people and the crackdown on Hong Kong. China uh, and Russia obviously have their own agendas for their own countries, but they are uh, very much, um, you know, I I think, I don't know if I'd call them allies, but they're certainly on the same side, uh, which is against any kind of Western value or Western, um, you know, life. And so do you expect or do you sense that they're going to just continue to get escalation of, um, you know, threats and um, um, just become more and more emboldened given, you know, Canada appears, uh, you know, to be quite weak. China's been pushing us around for, for years now. And, um, and so do you see them, you know, continuing to ratchet up their, their aggressions? Um, they, well, they, all these people are like bullies and bullies um, bully the weak. They don't bully the strong. And, and, um, uh, and so I, I think whoever was designing the Canadian response to these uh, ugly situations really had it all wrong, that right. you have to stand up tall and, and stand up strong and give them a punch in the nose. And so this is a punch in the nose. And, and, and to the extent that, that Canada is afraid of retaliation, Canada can do this now on a multilateral basis with like-minded countries. And, and, and there are, and on the China situation, there are 30, 30 countries involved in these sanctions. And so China can't retaliate against everybody. They're not going to cut off trade to everybody. They're not going to kidnap everybody. And, and if they do, then there are going to be more sanctions. And, and China is only as strong as, as they can single out people. And if everybody is working together, and if Canada is not sort of standing, cowering behind and doing nothing, uh, Canada will probably be seen as being a, a more um, a steadfast and, and scary opponent than, than one that, that wants trying to appease a dictatorship over there. In other words, Canada needs to be a whole lot more Bill Browder and uh, a lot less uh, right now Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Browder, I really appreciate your time on this. You give a a valuable and really interesting perspective on this. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. That is uh, Bill Browder joining us. And of course, he is the best-selling author of The Red Notice. Red Notice, if you are interested in picking that up. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.
Obviously, um, uh, we don't support uh, the carbon tax that uh, punishes, uh, you know, Canadians for driving to work and the doctor's office and costs them more for groceries, farmers for drying uh, grain. And uh, the, the government needs to have a, uh, a credible plan uh, to, uh, to uh, reduce emissions uh, without having a punitive effect on people for living their, uh, their lives. That is uh, ethics uh, critic Michael Barrett, who was asked uh, for a reaction just as the ruling came out this morning. So that's what uh, the answer was. But Aaron O'Toole put out a statement later today saying that he'll repeal the carbon tax and has a plan to protect the environment and get uh, real climate change addressed by not paying or making the uh, poorest pay more. So we'll see what that plan is. Um, you know, we are the only country that has two climate taxes. And really how it affects you depends on where you live and what you do. And as uh, Mr. Barrett uh, you know, referenced, you know, just ask a farmer what they think of the carbon tax. Because downtown Toronto might not care about it, but farmers pay tens of thousands of dollars to dry their crops. And so they're really feeling this. But then where does the issue go from here? You know, the promises. Uh, promised to kill the tax, and they've got to now come up with some kind of plan to address uh, climate change, or the feds are going to do it for them. And the, cor- the courts today did not say that the policy is good. They also didn't say how it should be carried out, just that it has to be a minimum standard of at least, I guess, 50 bucks per ton of carbon, or the federal government can step in. Laurie Goldstein probably knows more about this issue than uh, pretty much anyone I know. He's a columnist for, for Toronto Sun, Sun Media, and he joins us now. Good to have you, Laurie. Nice to be here. There's uh, the legal fallout. There's the political fallout. Um, do you think the court overreached here? No, um, I'm, I wasn't surprised by this verdict. I, I don't think um, many people who like follow this stuff closely was were. Um, you know, it, and as you said, you, you hit the nail on the head. It ruled that it's a constitutional law. Uh, it had nothing to say about whether it's a good law or a bad law. We have all kinds of constitutional laws that are terrible laws. Um, but what the, what the court did say is that, and, and this did cause me a little concern, that because of the urgency of yeah. uh, global warming, um, it, it justified under the Constitution's peace order and government clause uh, to really step into provincial jurisdiction. Normally, this would be provincial jurisdiction. It's the environment. But, mm-hmm. but the idea that, no, no, this is not just a Canadian problem, it's a global problem. So you can't have all the provinces just going off on their own. Um, but, but the way the Chief Justice talked about the urgency of this, mm-hmm. that to me was where he got into a, um, in my own personal opinion, the court went beyond its, its scope. Well, well, wait wait yeah. a minute. What do you mean it's a global emergency? And, we have, and basically, you know, that we have to protect humanity? Like, mm-hmm. no. Having said that, I don't, dis- I mean, I'm not challenging the decision. Um, they looked at the constitutionality, and in their wisdom, they decided this was constitutional, and that's fine. But that's never been the main issue. The main issue is the carbon tax going to do what we're being told it will do. And that, of course, that issue will continue. And in coming years, we will see if the carbon tax um, does what it says it's going to do, or if the conservatives win and they get rid of the carbon tax. So, you know, th- this was just sort of a, a kind of brush fire battle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting for, for legal analysts and all that, but it's not the real battle. 
No, and and here's here's what I found interesting, and I agree with you. That's what I meant in overreach, because some of the language was was definitely I thought activist and personal opinion of the judges. But you know they did mention that well emissions aren't uh, you know they don't stop at borders. Well, if that's the case, then um, then the Trudeau government better get a tax on China. They better get a tax on India. They better get a tax on the United States because emissions don't know borders, and they are the big polluters. Yeah, what I did today, because we had one of our columnists writing about the provincial federal jurisdiction, I just went into, okay, let's get back. All right, we're out of the courts now. Let's get back to the real world. In the real world, the, um, you know, and I'm one of the people who reads all this stuff, right, because I'm crazy. The United Nations yes. <laughs> Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that in order to stop catastrophic warming, we have to reduce the world has to reduce its emissions by 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. That's eight years from now. If Canada is to meet that standard, I just did all the math today, it will have to close the equivalent of emissions of its entire oil and gas sector and more than 80% of its 84% of its transportation sector. In other words, we would essentially have to have a lockdown a hundred times worse than what we just went through. Well, we, basically, you'd, you'd have to have this lockdown continue in, indefinitely. And see, that's right. the problem. This whole thing, it, it, it's in an, it, it When politicians like Trudeau, and in fairness, all of them, talk about mm. this, they are not talking about reality. We cannot achieve what the UN, which is, you know, leads all this stuff, and that's why I said we should pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. We cannot achieve what they are asking for. In his new, whatever, you know, his new strengthened climate plan, it's way below what the UN is asking for. He mm -hmm. wants to get it to 503 megatons of, of emissions by his one. Well, we have to still shut down the entire um, oil and gas sector, but only half of the electricity sector. Th this is all a fantasy. None of this is going to happen. Our emissions are going up, up, and up. The only time in the modern era they've gone down was in the 2008 um, global recession that was caused by the, uh, started with the subprime mortgage scandal. And in 2020, they've gone, they went down as well because of the pandemic. And they've gone down, they've gone down dramatically, but it's not going to last because as we come out of this um, pandemic-led recession, Hopefully, once we get all these vaccines out, everybody presumes that there's going to be an economic boost. If there's going to be an economic boost, then fossil fuel emissions are going to go up because they're the main source of energy. That's what happened in 2008. Our emotion our, our, in Canada, we dropped more dramatically than we ever had in the modern era. Lasted two years. Then it started going up again. Uh, at the start of this year, there, there was like various studies around the world that emissions were down in some countries, 17 percent, 15 percent. But it's already going up again as the economy right. recovers. So to meet these so targets, I'm yeah, they're talking about 7.6 percent reduction in emissions every year until 2030. Globally, right. it looks like the, the COVID-19 recession is about 8 percent. So to meet these targets, we'd have to we'd have to, to we'd have to have eight more pandemics over the next right. eight years, nine, no nine more. It, it's just absurd. None of that's going to yeah. happen. I'm, I've only got that. a minute left. I'm going to hit the wall, but I want to make sure I get this question in, though, because Aaron O'Toole says he can hit these targets and he doesn't need a tax to do it. So what should his or what can his plan look like? Because I think how, how does he fulfill this? 
well, you know, he doesn't need a tax, but so what he'll do, he'll regulate. Uh, he'll make it, he'll, he'll put more charges on emitters. What are the emitters going to do? They're going to raise the prices of consumer goods. There's no free lunch here. We are putting a charge in the, in the wisdom of our governments on something we've never charged for before, which is the emission of industrial gas, industrial greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. It's basically energy. We're putting a charge on one of the byproducts of energy. There's a cost to that. Somebody has to pay for that. Now, you're, you're no fool. Who ends up paying when, when there's bigger costs for industry? We pay. Mm -hmm. So you can call it a carbon tax, you can call it regulations, you can call it cap and trade, whatever you want. In the end of the day, we're all going to pay more. And no, it's not going to make 80% of us richer. It's just and not. It's, and it's also not going to bring down um, you know, emissions unless China yeah. and uh, the real, if, the if real offenders bring down don't emissions, that's yeah. a whole other discussion we can have yeah. someday about things that won't bankrupt us, but will lower emissions. But, it, but this, this isn't going to do it. All righty, the debate continues. Lori, always appreciate your insight because I know you know an awful lot about this, so I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Lori Goldstein, who, of course, writes for the uh, Toronto Sun here on Global News Radio. You know, every day we are waking up to new headlines. It's creating a lot of confusion, not to mention I think it's adding to a really uh, badly increased hesitancy. AstraZeneca has been a disaster. Now, the vaccine said to be safe. I would take it. I believe it's safe. But because we get new headlines every day that undermine it, people who would normally not have a hesitancy are now scared to take the shot. Then there's the issue of delaying second shots. Now, this is a decision that was strictly a political stunt. And there's absolutely no data to back up that this is smart. And now, of course, warnings are coming out that delays of getting the second shot is putting our most vulnerable at further risk. And now those who need the shot the most are saying, well, I don't want to get one shot if I'm not going to get the second shot. So I just won't get a shot at all. This is turning into just a big old cluster puck. And I'm just going to say it like that. Dr. Byron Bridal is an associate professor of viral immunology at the University of Guelph. He joins us again. Good to have you, doctor. Yes. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me again. Confusion seems to be our biggest enemy right now. Um, you know, every day it's a new headline. Now we're learning that we're not going to get the 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca from the United States because we're not ready. And then we're also not going to get this half million dose shipment because of um, backlog delays coming out of the European Union. And this is starting to turn a lot of people off from getting vaccines that normally wouldn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I've been frustrated since the beginning of the pandemic about this uh, this whole issue with vaccine hesitancy, and I've seen a lot of people, you know, experts talk about this. Vaccine people with vaccine hesitancy are often viewed as people who simply need to be better educated about vaccines, and if they were better educated, then clearly they would uh, adopt the vaccination strategies that are being rolled out uh, without any question. But in fact. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would argue that many of us that, are, that have vaccine hesitancy are, are actually very well informed, uh, keeping mm -hmm. up with all the latest developments and, and are hesitant simply because there's a lot of questions out there, a lot of unanswered questions. And, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of um, lack of faith in, in the accuracy of some of the information that's coming out. There's, there's, there's no question. You, you've hit on a couple of very important things. So first of all, uh, I would have to say with the AstraZeneca vaccine um, and, and doses not coming to Canada, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I, I can't um, rightfully uh, promote the AstraZeneca vaccine with, with a lot of strength at the moment. What, what we have to understand mm -hmm. in Canada is 
Um, it's proven safe. It seems to be safe short term again, right? We don't have long term data, uh, but short term seems it seems safe. We have uh, the, the the efficacy data. Uh, so originally, it was tested as a with a, a six week interval. Uh, this is actually where where one thing was done really well. They actually went back and evaluated a twelve week interval and have shown that that actually improves its effectiveness. Um, and that's the proper way to, co- to conduct uh, and, and promote changes in an interval in a vaccine. Go back and test the new protocol and show that it works before implementing it. So they have appropriately shown that you can lengthen the vaccine interval there. It actually improves the effectiveness, but it's still not nearly as effective as uh, the other vaccines that we approved earlier on, the messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna right. specifically. And secondly, what, what Canadians need to understand is it, it actually has proven to be almost completely ineffective against the South African variant. So a, right. a phase three clinical trial conducted in South Africa where that, the South African variant, of course, is dominant, um, it, it failed. And, and, and in fact, these valuable vaccine doses were given away by the uh, South African government because... Uh, they're not going to administer it to their population. And we have to be very clear, right, this this variant is present in Canada. So personally, if I had a choice, I mean, why would I want a vaccine that is known to not protect against one of the variants that's currently in Canada? And then when it comes to these intervals that you're talking about, this is a very serious uh, issue. So, Well, let me uh, pause you there because I want to get into the delays, but I want to ask you a question first because speaking of a South African friend of ours who is older than 65 and has cancer, and she was given the AstraZeneca vaccine, to which I, I, I gasped. I thought, why would they give her, an older person with a clear immunoproblem, uh, that vaccine of all? It, it should have been just an obvious that she would get Pfizer or, or Moderna. Uh, it's obvious to me. Now, now what I uh, can tell you, uh, and your viewers may not be aware of this, um, but so I have seen the letter that was circulated mm-hmm. from the Chief Medical Officer of Ontario. Uh, and this letter was sent to all of our public health units. And in there, the letter clearly states uh, that it is acknowledged that the AstraZeneca vaccine is not as effective as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And on that basis, people do have the option, Canadians have the option of opting out of this vaccine. It might mean they have to wait until another type of vaccine arrives at that clinic, or they may have to go to another clinic. Um, But it specifically states, in fact, that that this option of opting out for the AstraZeneca vaccine should be particularly encouraged for the high-risk demographics, which includes the very elderly. So you're right, that individual should not have received the AstraZeneca vaccine. All right. So, you know, push for push for the Pfizer and Moderna. In fact, I'm kind of of the mind that anybody over 65 should be automatically Pfizer and Moderna and they should automatically, you know, we, sh- we should be giving up shots so that they can get the two in the 21 days. But going back to the issue of delaying shots, I know that, you know, we Canada's top scientist has now advised against it. I know you have written letters uh, urging uh, politicians and, and, and the, the decision makers not to do this. And it looks like now Health Canada might change the dosing again um, for the elderly and immune compromised population because they've now figured out, oh yeah, the delays are not a good idea. Yes, yeah, as you said, I, I've been advocating for, for not changing the approved protocols since the Pfizer vaccine was first approved. That was the first one that we had for emergency use right. in Canada. And it's very important to understand that there's actually an interesting history here. The, the data on which this decision was based was published in a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. This was not a peer-reviewed scientific study. It was based on taking uh, cherry-picking data from Pfizer's phase three clinical trial 
and extrapolating it uh, using a an epidemiological model into which various assumptions were plugged in and without having the data to know whether those assumptions were or were not correct. So I would call mm-hmm. it at best pseudoscience. And it came up with this remarkable uh, new calculation that a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine was 92% effective, which is remarkable. And this has been propagated. And in the vaccination clinics right now rolling through Ontario, this is being cited as published data. What people need to realize is the researchers from Pfizer themselves published a rebuttal letter to this. Mm side-by-side in the New England Journal of Medicine, clearly stating that their trial was never designed to test single-dose efficacy of this vaccine. More importantly, uh, there's a German group that has just posted online a paper that they're attempting to get published. It has not undergone peer review yet, but I am a scientist who conducts peer review on a regular basis. I've reviewed it. I would request probably that they uh, resubmit to that journal a version that's, that has uh, minor revisions and, and answering a few questions. But the core data set seems very solid. And it's a little frightening in light of the decisions that we've made to force people into a four-month interval with this vaccine. They, they know that countries are considering doing this, so they did the proper thing and said, okay, we are going to design a study to see if we can provide the scientific rationale to do so. The outcome of the study was, in fact, just the opposite. They found that a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine failed to confer adequate protection for the vast majority of individuals, leading them to the final conclusion in their paper. The take-home message was, do not alter the interval Mm. with this vaccine. Every day that you extend that interval you are extending the time period in which the vast majority of people that receive that first dose are left unprotected. And Hmm. the only way that we can guarantee that remarkable 95% effectiveness is if you give that second dose three weeks later. So we have hard evidence now that there might actually be harm in lengthening these intervals. Scientists around the world and throughout Canada are flabbergasted. We don't understand. We have clear-cut data proving that these vaccines are highly effective if administered at a three-week interval for Pfizer and a four-week interval for Moderna. Anything other than that is pure speculation. We have no data to support it at this moment. And why would we force people into that type of experiment? It just makes no sense well, because, when we have well, it doesn't, but it's- that works. Yeah, but it's politics, doctor, and you know that. These politicians, certainly that the, the, you know, the Trudeau government, they, they screwed up. They didn't get them on time, and now they're trying to get them in as many people as they can so they can say, hey, look, we got you a shot. We didn't say, you know, full vaccination. We just got you the shot. But, you know, it, it's interesting. When it comes to climate change, it's all about the science, the science, the science. But here we are with vaccines that are new to the market. People are concerned about them. And, and we've got politicians playing politics on a health issue that really affects people. I don't understand. I've been talking about this for weeks. I don't understand why there's not more outrage over this. I, I don't either. I was very happy to see that our chief science advisor has stepped up to the plate here, right? Also saying, yeah. show us the data, show us the, the empirical evidence that suggests these changes. But now that there's this evidence actually suggesting it could be dangerous, right, make, makes this even worse. I don't know. I certainly have been speaking up uh, in outrage yeah. about this. Um, and, and I think that we need more people to do this. If you ask Health Canada, what do they recommend? If you health, ask the manufacturers what they recommend, it is the three and four week interval and they will recommend nothing else. In fact, Health Canada legally cannot recommend anything else. 
And people need to start asking, why is that? It is because they are the overarching watchdog for the rollout of vaccines in Canada, and their job is to make sure that Canadians do not become experimental subjects. So right. that is why they can't, the only way the Health Canada could recommend the change is if the companies go back and test the new proposed protocol and show that it is safe and effective, and then if Health Canada is happy with that data, then they will approve this new protocol. So why we're allowing public health agencies to override Health Canada's decisions makes no sense to me. And it's, you're absolutely correct. I do believe it is to get uh, to try and meet this promise of getting a needle into people's arms. I think that's where the AstraZeneca vaccine, right. if I can be very blunt about it, comes in as well. Honestly, again, if I'm blunt about it, I honestly feel it's, we're, we're accepting a lot of garbage from other people when we're trying to get these uh, AstraZeneca uh, doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And it's, again, to, to make sure we'll just inject whatever into people's arms, no matter how poor quality that, that vaccine is, we'll approve these new vaccines, even though they're a step backwards from the ones we already had. And, uh, but this is potentially dangerous. It's with the assumption that surely all of these people will at least be partially protected. But like I said, there is now evidence that they won't be partially protected. Worse, as an immunologist, I can tell you, a vaccine is designed to induce immunological memory. That's what we need from the vaccine. We haven't proven that the memory conferred by a single dose of these vaccines lasts out to four months. If it does not, not only might we have people that are unprotected through that prolonged time period, but that second dose may no longer function as a booster right. vaccine. It might be like getting the first dose again, and those people will never get to the 95% protection. Yikes. And uh, we will create a nice old superbug in this country, and the world won't be very happy. Doctor, I've got to let you go on that note, but I'll have you back again. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Uh, take care. You too, Dr. Byram Bridal, joining us here. Hey, look, if you want to buy the political you know, spin, if you want to believe the talking points, that's, that's on you. But being vaccinated, and I've heard it from someone, I got vaccinated today, got vaccinated. Until you've had two shots within 21 days, you are not vaccinated. And uh, the sooner we stop buying the political spin, that's when the politicians will start to be accountable. But they are screwing up this rollout so badly that not only are we going to be stuck with a pandemic longer... But we're going to be putting the most vulnerable people in jeopardy. It's, I don't understand why it's not a bigger story, but I will keep talking about it here on Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.